RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Episode 5, The Star Trek Format, March 11th, 1964. Support for The Trek Files comes from our friends at Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the first starship in the collection, Star Trek The Next Generation's Enterprise D, for only $4.95 with free shipping when you sign up now at st-starships.com slash the Trek Files. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, deep divers and Trekophiles everywhere. And I say that with an F. <laughs> yeah, this is Dr. Trek again, Larry Nemechek. And we have a seminal show today, not so much focused on a secret document because I'm holding the the copy of this document that I bought from a dealer in the late 70s at a convention, maybe the early 80s. But it's one that I'm so thrilled to disseminate and analyze today with a special guest. But first, let's go back to the central document to all of Star Trek, Gene's original pitch to whatever network would buy the show, dated March 11th, 1964. It's up at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. If you don't already have your copy or looking at it online somewhere else, you can read along with us there. And here, I think, is just the core essence of the whole 12-page document. Star Trek is a wagon train concept built around characters who travel to worlds similar to our own and meet the action-adventure drama, which becomes our stories. Their transportation is the cruiser SS Yorktown, performing a well-defined and long-range exploration science security mission, which helps create our format. The time is somewhere in the future. It could be 1995, or maybe even 2995. In other words, close enough to our own time for our continuing characters to be fully identifiable as people like us, but far enough into the future for galaxy travel to be thoroughly established happily eliminating the need to encumber our stories with tiresome scientific explanation. We'll be right back after a short word from our sponsor. Star Trek fans, your ships have come in. The official Star Trek Starships collection from Eagle Moss is the ultimate collection of the most significant vessels from across the Star Trek universe, from the original series to Star Trek Beyond and Beyond. Each ship is cast in a specially formulated metallic resin and hand-painted with reference to actual production models. Each also comes with a display base and collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of technology on board. Start your collection today with the USS Enterprise 1701D for only $4.95 with free shipping. New models ship twice monthly, and you may cancel your subscription at any time. For details on the entire collection and to order, visit st-starships.com slash thetrekfiles. Make it so at st-starships.com slash thetrekfiles.
We've always heard about the wagon train to the stars thanks to the making of Star Trek. And for that and the story springboards in this and all the changes and, and, and just looking back at this 50 years later. And who better to have with me to talk about all of this today than the story editor for the original series, the associate producer and story editor on the animated series and on The Next Generation. And... In 1964, Gene Roddenberry's executive secretary, assistant, right-hand man, Girl Friday, none other than Dorothy D.C. Fontana. Dorothy, I am so thrilled to have you here with us today. Um, I, I want to do some other shows with you. We're going to get into some other topics later on. But you can't get more basic and seminal to Star Trek than this. I was there at the beginning. <laughs> I think, did you tell me that you were working with Gene during this? Oh, yes. Yes. I was on, on his secretary uh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> you typed this? Probably, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the pitch memo to... Yes. He went to CBS first. Right? Yes. And they turned him down. They listened first yes. <laughs> to see what they could learn for Lost in Space and turned him down. Well, actually, MGM had first shot at it because he was just coming off the lieutenant mm -hmm. and uh, the series was coming to an end. And they had first look rights. And they said, nah, we don't want that. Uh, so, okay. They didn't want to do science fiction. Then he started looking to other studios. And about the third one they came to was Desilu then. Uh, Desilu Gower was the main mm -hmm. lot, which is, of course, the, the uh, let me see, the western edge of Paramount. <laughs> right, that they wound up buying out and, and taking over. Yes, indeed. How did you come to work with Gene before we jump into this, into the pitch letter here. I was uh, secretary to his associate producer, Del Reisman, on the Lieutenant series. Uh -huh. And so we were working in close quarters every day there. And uh, when Jean's personal secretary was taken out uh, with an appendix attack and she was out for a month, then he said, well, you come in and fill in and somebody else will fill in for you with Del. So that's how I came to work closer with him. And uh, then at the end of the Lieutenant, he... Uh, came to me and he, he knew I had already written uh, half a dozen uh, stories and, or teleplays. And he said, uh, read this, tell me what you think. And it was about 15 pages of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. This, basically. This, the this raw, basically, yes. The raw version of this. Well, working on The Lieutenant, which itself was a pretty groundbreaking show. It wasn't just another military show, obviously, where he was trying to take on some of these themes. And it's mm -hmm. the, getting censored on The Lieutenant is what sparked him into trying – to, do, to, to get those themes across with science fiction, right? right? Right. Do you remember before he asked you to be to work with him, do you remember having impressions of him about, wow, this is I, I, he's like a subversive radical here in TV <laughs> or, or anything like that? No. Uh, we were just uh, trying to get stories into script and on the stage and then on the air. Uh, we did some that broke some ground, but mm -hmm. uh, within the military format, there were only some stories we could tell and others we could not get in there. Uh, but uh, we tried really hard, and the show had a nice reception. It was uh, Gary Lockwood and Robert Vaughn, uh, and the series only lasted one year. Right, right. So he's he's putting this together. What did you think? Were you a science fiction fan? Oh, yes. Necessarily? Okay. <laughs> not, okay. Not a huge fan, but I knew it, uh, uh, and understood science fiction. I read some, not a lot. I saw more science fiction movies than anything at that time. Okay. Because we're talking, again, 1963, 64 here, mm -hmm. not current day. And science fiction then was a, a much different – in the mainstream was a much different critter, much more niche and out there. And, yes. And nerdier, if you will, or, mm -hmm. or esoteric. 
So not everyone's cup of tea. So you all kind of bonded very quickly. And um, uh, you remember the development process behind behind the Star Trek is document then. And, and while he was, you were with him while he was going around to pitch. And... Well, I was manning the office. But, right. Yeah. right. <laughs> well, it, it started out as a little simpler, not quite as built out as this is, because this was the uh, the final pitch document. But the first ones I saw, it, it was not three pages or anything like that, like Herb Solo said on a recent interview. Um, it was... Uh, uh, there, the characters were there. The basic characters were there. The the, the uh, uh, idea of the show was there, and Wagon Train to the Stars was in that pitch. Uh, but then he built it out more, filling out the characters, filling out the story possibilities, and so on. And this became his major pitch document. Right now, let's let's go with that Wagon Train to the Stars. That's a very famous phrase. People have read that for uh, uh, the making of Star Trek onward. People, I think, today tend to think, well, he's saying that because Westerns were big at the time, and he's just trying to equate science fiction can be the same. But there's more to it than that. He's talking about the format and the characters, mm-hmm. isn't it right? Yes. Um, Wagon Train was a very popular show. Uh, when I was working for Samuel A. Peoples at uh, Review Studios, Wagon Train was shooting. They were you know, there on set all the time. I frequently went outside, but very often on sets. And one lunchtime, I remember going down and peeking in and s- being able to stand uh, – you know, set side while Betty Davis uh, uh-huh. did scenes from a show that uh, she was starring in. Uh, Wagon Train did attract a lot of intense, really talented people, and uh, they told good stories. It was always the Wagon Train and the Wagon Train moving west, but each individual episode was about someone in the Wagon Train, what their problems were, what they were trying to overcome, how what they were running from, uh, what they were running to. Uh, so they, they told all kinds of wonderful people stories in the context of a Western. But with, with recurring char- – with regular characters. Yes. The uh, Wagon Master and um, – uh, the, the, the cook and uh, right. uh, uh, Robert Horton is the uh, uh, scout. Um, yeah, and Ward Bond was the trailer. Ward yeah. Bond was, yeah. the, was the wagon master. And, uh, but they did have regular – it wasn't a total anthology. No, no. They right. always had, had those – face every week. Yeah, those wagon train characters uh, who were regulars were there every week and were used uh, as needed to tell the story of this particular individual or family, whatever they were doing. But they always uh, changed it up. Uh, they had different kinds of stories. So technically, it was a running drama series, but with anthology elements to it. Right. And then they could be in, Mo- in the middle of the plains one moment. And, well, not one moment. Eventually get to Monument Valley. I mean, the background. San Francisco, could- basically. <laughs> right, right. The, the, uh, the backgrounds. Could- it was a lot like Star yes. Trek where they had a home set. It was- yes. And then on Bonanza or, or Dodge City, you had the town or the ranch and things came to. Sometimes yes. they would go out. Yes. But things would come there. It was more of a homier stationary feeling, I yes. think. Yes. And they didn't leave western Nevada or western Kansas. It was pretty much there as opposed to wagon train in motion and right. Star Trek in motion. So right. that's really where the uh, – yes. Where that comes from? It was. A, who, did Gene come up with that on his own? Yes. You, oh, okay. I was gonna, I'm trying to let you take credit here for some of these <laughs> gems that we all know. So, well, uh, you know, Wagon Train was such a hit still uh, that uh, using that reference uh, connected with the people you're trying to sell to. 
Oh, yeah, wagon train. That's right. doing pretty well, isn't it? Yeah, hmm. <laughs> right, right, the old pitch. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's friends meets uh, the Twilight Zone or whatever, <laughs> right, for your pitch sign. Well, so much of this document has been disseminated and dissected over the years uh, and about how the, sh- the, you know, the format evolved. It's Captain yes. April and number one, and mm-hmm. Spock is the number three character, and the doctor eventually becomes Dr. Boyce. Um, yeah, well, there is one thing, Joe. Uh, I always feel sad. Uh, I feel bad for um, people who say there haven't been very uh, through all the incarnations of Star Trek. Uh, there haven't been really any Hispanic regular characters, but I think Hispanics started off more in the Bible that because of casting. You know, there was uh, mm-hmm. Macho Hernandez on Next Generation. It became yes. Tasha Yar because of Doctor Amoros became Doctor Bashir on mm-hmm. on DS Nine because of casting. Um, and here, uh, uh, Joe Tyler. Started off as Jose Ortegas, mm-hmm. <laughs> who was supposed to be South American. But, but that uh, character dropped out, and uh, ultimately we came to it, the navigator being Mr. Chekhov, and the helmsman right. being Mr. Sulu. Right. Uh, so we did have, uh, and we had Michelle Nichols as Uhura uh, on the uh, communications. And uh, so we did have uh, a mix-up of uh, you know various right. uh, races and, and sexes. Uh, but... Uh, we couldn't get in everything we wanted to. Right. Well, I mean, just in the course of evolving into what became the cage, mm-hmm. uh, Jose Ortegas became uh, uh, Joe Tyler. I've gone blank. Joe Tyler. Yeah, Joe Tyler. Yeah, uh, just in the evolution of the cage, Jose Ortegas became Joe Tyler. Mm-hmm. But you were telling me about a story, a wrinkle to number one that I had not heard before. Well, we didn't get a chance to develop it because she was really only in one show. Right, right. Uh, played by Major Barrett. Uh, number one uh, was the executive officer in the cage, uh, but she was humanoid. She was from another planet. Uh, and on that planet, uh, you became number one in your birth year when you achieved outstanding, uh, you know, abilities, uh, talent, uh, uh, you know, mind uh, accomplishments, etc. Uh, you were number one, and that was your name. And she was number one for her year. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we never got to talk about that. Or it was she was just called number one, and everybody thought it was the naval right. uh, or, or or the military uh, right. designation, for officer. yeah, yeah uh, as opposed to that being her real name. <laughs> so we never got to explore that. Unfortunately, did she? Well, that's amazing. Yeah, that's not even in the that's not no. even in the Bible in the uh, show what, Bible. That's what we talked about as we wanted her character to develop, but it never got into the Bible, and we never got a chance to do it beyond the cage. So, right? Did you ever talk about having a name for her? Not that I recall. Were no. they going to? If that had gone to series, were they just going to call her number, number one? Number one, yes, number one, and never give her a a real name. No, uh, uh, almost like the holographic doctor. On of course, you could have done an episode about them trying to name her. Right. That would have been fun. Right. <laughs> I can't see if it had gone three or four or five years. I can't see them totally. Can't see you totally leaving that alone. Uh, the, the the other thing that struck me, and and again, it's no secret for anyone that's, who's read this over the years, uh, as the seminal moment, the foundation of all Star Trek is. It, it, it is longer than normal for a pitch letter. Yes. Uh, three pages may have been a normal series pitch with characters and things, but you had to explain the background. Mm-hmm. But there's fully three and a half pages out of the 12 that are the story springboards. I mean, yes. Gene's having to sell the fact that I can, I've got the ideas and we can produce it on a budget. Right. right? Exactly. And how to do that. Um, and some of the very famously um, 
Some of these stories jumped into episodes, were made into episodes. The Day Charlie Became God was Charlie X. Charlie X, yeah. The Capones became Piece of the Action. Then there is The Man Trap here. Um, a couple of these even seem like they became next generation stories if somebody wanted to go digging. The Mirror here. Yes. Um, do you remember, did you did you have a hand in any of these? No, these remember? were all Gene's original stories. They all were? Okay. Uh, instead of trying to come in with one myself, uh, when he said you can write one of these, I said, I want Charlie X. Or I, I, I want mm-hmm. Charlie. Um, because I really like the idea of this boy being raised by aliens on an alien planet, and he doesn't have any real idea of how to be a human being. He has to learn how to be a human being. And unfortunately, some of the things the aliens taught him or gave him the ability to do are fatal to, <laughs> to human beings. So uh, I, I thought that was an intriguing story, uh, especially since I had two young brothers at the time, and uh, I could see some of Charlie's uh, you know, moves and, and uh, language in him. Uh, so uh, I should say in them, uh, but it was uh, it was a fun story to write. And I gave Gene full credit for the story, even though I developed the story mm-hmm. more. Uh, I just took teleplay credit on that one. Do you remember thinking that there was a, a, a root idea here in these? There's like two dozen in here mm-hmm. that you would like to, if the show had gone longer or if you'd stayed more involved longer, that you had your eye on to develop. Not really. I like doing my own. After so after, so after I yeah. you know. Uh, I originated some of the uh, my credits by myself. Others were rewrites assigned to me, and I got the credit uh, through the Writers Guild uh, arbitration process, etc. Uh, but uh, the Charlie appealed to me a lot. That was the one that jumped out at me. Well, it's it's we've again we've had this one actually has not been a hidden document. We've had it for 50 years to enjoy and. Um, but thank you for sitting down today and, and looking at it through some fresh eyes of someone who was there uh, and, and getting into some of these points. Uh, you can never go old. It's like the best of Star Trek. You can always glean something new the more you go back through. But thanks again, Dorothy. Thank you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All documents are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. For more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47 with me at larrynimacek.com. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.